0: Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So, enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Um, Bible. Here's the Bible. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Although this could be entertaining and perhaps kind of uh, troublesome if I continue in this vein. It's always bad when you go off script, eventually. It's fun for a little bit, but anyway. So, Matthew 22, chapter, uh, I did this last week, chapter 22 verses 34 through 46. We'll be there in just a moment. Um, but I want to kind of introduce um, this passage and some things that are addressed in the content of this passage by uh, asking a question and helping us think about how differently all of us think about God. Isn't it amazing how differently we think about God and how differently different people Think about God, maybe different denominations or different traditions or uh, just even where you live in the, in the country or in the world, just how differently uh, we think about God. Thinking differently about God is, in one sense, uh, very much a gift. That's part of what we believe as Anabaptists is, uh, and we practice as Anabaptists is uh, this idea of a community hermeneutic or a a community interpretation of scriptures. This is what our interpretive communities do uh, every week. But we look to hear from one another because we feel like and we believe that a corporate understanding is a better understanding of scripture and of God. Because we come from different places, we come from different backgrounds and different experiences and we bring all of those things to the table to share with one another. Uh, And so in in one way, thinking about God differently and experiencing God differently is a gift and should be a gift to uh, the community. But we've probably also experienced the flip side of this, the other side of of, of this too. Sometimes we feel people's different thoughts about God uh, are offensive, maybe or contradictory, or sometimes they're just downright wrong, right? Um, or, and probably, people, you've thought that of others and maybe people have thought the same thing of, of you as well. Um, but whatever the experience is, uh, Jesus can identify with this experience of either mistaken assumptions or being mistaken. He can identify with us as we are misinterpreted. I know uh, there's, there's several of us in this room uh, because we've had conversations together, right, where we try to talk to our families about God, extended families. And it's just hard for us because they think so differently than we do. We have parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or brothers or sisters who are just coming at this from different ways, and sometimes it's hard for us uh, to process with them, to have conversations with them. And, and Jesus gets this, Jesus understands uh, this. And this is, in some ways, what's happening, part of what's happening in the text that we're going to look at today. And so I, I invite us to pay attention to how Jesus handles that tension and what Jesus is doing in the midst of that tension, of uh, people thinking differently about him and differently about God. So let's look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 46. Just the first two verses first. So we, we continue the, the progression on. And so hearing that, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and the, uh, the Sadducees. So we didn't get to this passage of the scripture. It comes right before here. But there was uh, Jesus had been going back and forth in this rabbinical uh, style of debate with different groups of uh, Jewish leaders. And so um, hearing that Jesus had just silenced the uh, Sadducees, the Pharisees get together then. And then one of them, who's an expert in the law, tested him with this question. And that person says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so I want to pause here because before we finish it out, uh, I want to help us to pay attention to what Jesus is going to do here. um, And to notice something about Jesus. Uh, so what's been going on throughout this chapter has been this rabbinical style back and forth. So it's a question and an answer, and then you, but you answer in the forms of questions. Uh, so a lot of times Jesus answers in parables, but this, what we're going to read, is a, a, a little more straightforward. It's something different that Jesus is going to do. So, but what has been happening is there's been these different leaders from different sects of Judaism that have been trying to trap Jesus in his words. Uh, we don't get the sense that they're actually making inquisitions that are, um, they, they actually want to know what Jesus thinks, and so this isn't uh, a genuine question that they're asking or posing to Jesus, but it's something that's being used to, to trap Jesus. And so, how Jesus answers them has answered but is answering them here is very important because it's not just about the answer but it's about what it tells us about God because the way Jesus answers these questions this question that is being posed to him tells us something about the nature of God. So what Jesus says isn't a parable, it's pretty straightforward, and it's full of compassion. You might not get this on a surface reading, but it is full of compassion. And that's what I want to draw our attention to this morning. This is the last exchange. So to give us some perspective, some context, this is the last exchange that Jesus is going to have with the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, or anybody in the the rabbinical uh, and and Jewish uh, leadership. This is the last conversation they're going to have. This is the Monday before the cross of Friday. Okay, so this is the last back and forth that they're going to have. In some ways, we might think about this as Jesus' final words, inviting the Jewish leaders through the use of Scripture to reconsider how they understand the Lord or how they understand Lordship. So uh, before we read this, just thinking about why is this compassionate, Um, why is this, uh, or can we read this as an invitation? Uh, And some context that's helpful here, the two groups that Jesus is talking to, the two groups that have questioned him, one are the Sadducees, the other are Pharisees. The Sadducees are this Jewish group that only used as their scripture the Torah. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees, on the other hand, that's the only ones that they accepted as scripture. The Pharisees, on the other hand, not only accepted Torah, but they accepted the prophets, the Psalms, uh, the the entirety of it. And so uh, what we see Jesus doing here is drawing their attention both to and speaking to each group, drawing their attention uh, to rethinking their conception of Lord, what Lord means. And so for the sake of the Sadducees, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to pull uh, some scripture texts from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and then pull some scripture texts from Leviticus chapter 19. Because he wants to speak in a way to the Sadducees that they're going to hear. They're going to accept. So he's going to them on their terms. And the same thing is going to happen towards the Pharisees. So these are two groups of people that are opposed to each other coming together, testing Jesus. But Jesus is speaking to them in ways that they're going to understand. So Pharisees, to the Pharisees, he's going to use Psalm 110, which is a scripture text that they're going to accept. But the theme with both of these things centers on lordship. So let's read the rest of the passage and hear it as a way of of Jesus saying, look, Sadducees, okay, I'm going to speak to you in a way that you can understand. Pharisees, I'm going to speak to you in a way that you can understand. This is an act of compassion and inviting them I think to reconsider uh, what their conception of the Lord is And, and, and I think it even brings more weight to it considering that this happens during the Monday of Holy Week. So Jesus replied, verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And so he shifts here. The first two, uh, those were scriptures from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Now he shifts. Who do you think? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? This is kind of a mind-bending text. You're kind of like, What is he talking about here? I don't get it. I don't understand it. And so he says, for he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If Then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one said a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so I think that Jesus is giving one message or one invitation to two different groups of people that have been challenging him all along. I know we give the Pharisees a, a hard time and, and, and Jesus does have pointed words for them, but Jesus, that doesn't mean Jesus is not compassionate towards them. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want them to believe in him just like everybody else does. And so what is common to each of these two texts, the Torah reading for the Sadducees the Psalm reading for the Pharisees, is the emphasis on the Lord. Jesus starts out using Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is taken from the Shema prayer. It's something that the Jews would pray every day. Uh, So I want to read this in its entirety. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be written upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so within this this idea or this prayer of the Shema comes the idea of lordship. Now, the Greek word for Lord is Kyrios, and this is some of the connotations that come behind Lord. This is what Lord means. This is what Jesus as Lord means. So Lord means uh, the, the one to whom a person or a thing belongs. So if we think of Jesus as Lord, we belong to Christ. We belong to the Lord. Uh, or, or it has the connotation of that one being a, a one who has the power to decide, which is something that we surrender to, right? We pray weekly, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done not only on earth, but in, in my life, right? And so there's a power of deciding and surrender and submission. Um, the, the, the Lord is the owner, the one who has control over the person, the master. Again, in this context, in, in In Greek life there was the the slave master context, that's not not affirming that sort of subjugation, but it's speaking in a language that they can understand. It's also a title of reverence or honor, um, and it's the title that's given to Jesus as the Messiah. And framed within Deuteronomy six, we see that the Lord is really the Lord over everything. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine is this talk about it it's this all encompassing nature of your life. Every part of your life is the Lord's. Every part of your life is the Lord's. Last week we talked about this uh, in this question. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God's what is God's. What is God's? Everything is God's and everyone is God's. And so we give everything and everyone to God. This again has the idea of lordship in Deuteronomy chapter 6. These commands are to be upon your hearts. In other words, because your heart is the seat of your will, these commands are to guide the decisions that you make. The Lord is to guide the decisions that you make. You're to impress them upon your children. And one way I read it is this: Let your kids see how you live. I love what they pray, uh, uh, what Curtis prayed about Brian and Kara, because I do feel that. Like there, I don't want to hold them up on a pedestal, but as I see them, and I see them interacting with their kids, this is what they're embodying with their life. They're trying to pass on to them the faith that they have. So let them see how you live. Show them first how you live, and then, this is what Ruby and I try to do, we try to show them how we live, and then, as we have opportunity, we tell them why we live the way that we do. And then in the end, as they've gotten older, we always kind of uh, try to communicate This is what we believe. You have to make these decisions on your own, and we want to empower them to do that. And then there's this talking. Talk about it all the time. Talk about it on your daily commute when you're driving to work or whatever you're doing. At the beginning and at the end of the day, have it frame the way you think about your day. Carry them around with you. Shop at Hobby Lobby and hang it all over your house. That only came to mind because I was in somebody's house that it was like Hobby Lobby vomit. And I, was, and I thought, oh, this would work. Um, I have nothing against Hobby Lobby one way or the other. I, it's not my particular mode of decor. But if you like it, be blessed. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, man. That was funny to me, too. <laughs> oh. Christian hates it when I make myself laugh and I just can't stop. I'm on the brink right now because that was, that was funny to me. Anyway. <laughs> and no offense to those of you who have blessed in your house either. Anyway. Okay. Uh, you get the idea. So the idea is that because the Lord is the Lord, people live and God's people live in a certain way because we belong to the Lord. And so our life is not our own. You and I, we're created beings. We're created beings. We've been created by a creator. It's bigger than just our parents. There is, there is a creator that has set this whole thing in motion. And so there is a way that our creator has intended us to live. And living in that way means trusting uh, God and Christ as Lord. And so we live in a way that honors the Lord, not a means. And this is a, an incredibly important distinction. We live in the ways of the Lord to honor the Lord, not to earn the favor of God. Like, what you do is not going to make God love you more. There, this sense of earning that we uh, have, I think that's not just inherent to the church, it's just inherent to us. That's, that's kind of the human, the fleshly part of us we feel like we need to earn. That is not something God anticipates or asks from you. Okay. God wants you to live into this because it's good for you, and because this is the way God has created you to live, to and, live and, and the world to function. Okay? That's why we do it. We do it to honor and respect and revere Jesus, but not to earn anything from, from God. God has given that all to us up front already. So then the question is, how do we honor the Lord? So if we honor the Lord, how do we honor the Lord? Jesus boils it down to two simple commandments. And Trevin, if you want to put the the next slide up here. Jesus does something pretty brilliant here. So at the time uh, Jesus is talking and teaching, there's been uh, 613 commandments that have been kind of compiled by the the Jewish leaders, the rabbinical tradition, over numbers of years. So uh, what started out as 10 has become 613. And so if you look at kind of the progression here, what Jesus is doing, he's breaking uh, the, the, the leader is saying, which one's the, the greatest? And so there's 613 at the time to choose from. Jesus is a rabbi, he's a part of the Jewish tradition, so he would be familiar with the 613. He not only breaks it down to 10, but he breaks it down to two, and the genius thing that Jesus does here is he breaks uh, those two in, down in a way that um, summarize the whole of the Ten Commandments. And so, if you look at this, if you look uh, at the slide, the Commandments 1 through 3 are described in loving God. So, no other gods before me, no images, and not using the name of the Lord your God in vain. Funny story. It's not just not saying, oh, my God, okay? Using the name of the Lord in vain is more like co-opting the name of God, the power of God, the power of the name of God for your own ends. Um, Not that saying, oh, my God, is, is a good thing. Um, but when I was a kid, I had a friend, his name was Kevin, he said that a lot. And, and, and I told him that every time he did, I would punch him. <laughs> because my mind was trained, I was trained in my family that OMG was a sin, and, and so we wouldn't be having that in my house. Um, and so Kevin and I are no longer friends. Um, <laughs> So you have the first three commandments wrapped up in love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength love the Lord your God the first three commandments are directed God words are directed vertically, commandments five through ten then, are all neighbor connected right they're others connected. Now what's interesting here is commandment number four is the commandment on the Sabbath and we could do a whole bit with this like the commandment number four, the Sabbath is learning to live as if. God is Lord of all things. As if everything is complete already in God. And so because everything is complete in God, that fourth commandment helps us to live in a way that is at rest and at peace and trusting that God is God and and we can live out of that restful space. Sabbath is actually not a day, it's a way of life. It's a way of life that God intended for us and it's the way that everything will be in the end. Aside, over. But Jesus breaks these things down into two: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Commandments one through three, and love your neighbor as yourself, Commandments five through ten. If you go to Leviticus and read the second, as soon as Leviticus nineteen says nineteen eighteen says love the Lord or, um, love your neighbor as yourself, it says period, and then it the the phrase right after that says I am the Lord, right. That doesn't make it in here, but it's the emphasis. It's the same thing. Love because I am the Lord. Because I am the Lord of love. Right? And so this is what Jesus is getting at here. All these commandments boiled down to two. Uh, There's a quote by Chris Green in your bulletins. I just love this guy. He's an Anglican bishop now. and he, he says this about the nature of the commandments. He says, if you break these commandments, because a lot of the time we think, we gotta, we gotta follow these commandments to be in right line with God. But he says, if you break these commandments, you are actually harming the people around you. It's not like you can harm God. You can't harm God, but you can certainly harm the people around you. And so if you don't do this, if you don't perform these commandments, if you don't obey these commandments, people around you suffer. And so the commandments are given to us to live out so that others may live. Okay? It's not because we have to earn anything with God. But we do it because God desires us to live this way in a way that will make all of us flourish together. And that's why the commandments are given. And central to the commandments for Jesus, he's boiling it down, is love. Because love is, the central, uh, is, is central to the nature of God. So Jesus in speaking to the Sadducees emphasizes Lord but he also emphasizes it, a, a, a specific aspect of the Lord. That the Lord is love. The Lord is love. Now we're going to, we're going to take that and we're going to apply that kind of idea to what, what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees because it's, it kind of doesn't make sense. But it will make sense in a minute. Okay, so let's turn to the Pharisees, Psalm 110 that he's going to use. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to it there. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, but here's what Jesus says first in Matthew to them, just recapping. So while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, um, so what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. And so what what on earth does citing this have to do with that? And so let's see if we can make some connections. First, what's Psalm 110 about? It's a psalm that's about a violent kind of victory. And so one of the interpretive tools that we use when we, when we see psalms that are cited in the New Testament, right, it's not just the citation that we're looking at, it's not the line or two, but what we need to do as soon as we see that is leap back into the psalms and read the psalm in its entirety. Because that's what they're trained to do. That's what the Jewish mind is trained to do. You quote a line or two from the psalms, you're referring to the whole psalm, not just, uh, not just a line or two. And so, if you flip back to Psalm 110, then, uh, and read it in its entirety, this is what they would be thinking. The Lord said to my Lord, Yep, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the part that Jesus quoted. Next, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. There you go. I feel like Jonathan Bowman should read that in his deep voice. He will crush on the days of Iraq. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dread and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. And so this is a violent conquest type song. And Jesus is using this psalm, asking them to reconsider on the Monday of Holy Week before they bring him in to crucify him on Friday Thursday night into Friday he's asking and inviting them to reconsider the kind of Messiah they're looking for they're looking for one that's in the line of David and Trev if you want to put up that second kind of picture slide and so what this depicts for you is is kind of an imagery of what they're expecting with David and so David <laughs> David for all the accolades that he gets he wasn't a great guy Like, man after God's own heart, okay, but he's kind of crummy, right? He's a very violent man, and his rule was marked by violence. It's part of why he wasn't allowed to, to rule the temple. But in their mind, they're thinking, okay, David. And then enemies, they're thinking, okay, who's oppressing us currently? So it was Assyria and it was Babylon before in the times of the exile, now it's Rome. And so they're expecting the Messiah to overthrow the oppressor in a way that is in line with David through means of violence. And so Jesus is inviting them to consider the Lord as someone who is greater than David, above David. Someone whom David is answerable to. And one to whom David's ways are answerable to. So it's not just David, but it's the ways of David. This psalm, uh, the first two lines that Jesus quotes, is quoted elsewhere in the New Testament. In Hebrews it's quoted, and the writer uh, quotes verse 4, and identifies Jesus as the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is this kind of weird sort of figure that pops in and out just a couple times in the Bible but his priesthood is differently than the one that is built on blood, built on the line of Aaron. Those same lines are used by Jesus uh, in verse 1, are used by Peter in the first sermon that is given on the day of Pentecost and he follows it up uh, saying, uh, quoting those lines from the psalm saying, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. That God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And all this is happening on the Monday of Holy Week, just a few days before the cross. And so Jesus is inviting these two religious groups who are leading the religious systems of the time. Right? They're leading the worship of the people. They're shaping the worship of the people. He's inviting these two religious groups steeped in history, steeped in the tradition of Judaism, steeped in the exile, but still incredibly misguided in their understanding of God. He's inviting them to reconsider their understanding of the Lord through the lens of love. Now, love is too easy of a word, so I'll quote, I'll quote Soren Kierkegaard here. He says to the Christian, love is the works of love. Love is the works of love. To say that love is a feeling or anything of that kind is an unchristian conception of love. We don't love when we feel like it. It's not love based on feelings. He says Christ's love was never an inner feeling, a full heart and whatnot. It was the work of love which was his life. And so for Jesus, love and life go hand in hand. Love is central to life as Jesus understood it. Love is central to our way of being, and we talked about this theological term before—the idea of kenosis uh, happening. So, if you picture the Trinity in whatever way you can do that, right? Three persons, and the idea—the the kenotic love—is one Father pouring love and life into the Son, pouring love and life into the Spirit, pouring love and life into the Father, pouring love and it's this continuous pouring and emptying that is the idea of what the central nature of God is like, and that is love. That kind of love is canonic, right? This is the kind of love that we're called to, and so it's a work of love. I am continually, not first pouring out, friends, But I'm first receiving because I don't know how to love until I've received the love of God. I think that's where our misconceptions of love come in because it it feels like or we think it's something that originates with us. But it's not something that originates with us. It's something that is given to us by God. That's part of allowing Jesus to become Lord is the love of the Lord flowing into our Lives And at at the the beautiful moment of conversion where we say yes to that, it feels overwhelming and all-consuming and warm and fuzzy all inside, right? But it's not just to remain inside because the love of the Lord that pours out is also to be poured out. That's what it means to love in the way of the Lord. And so we receive the love of the Lord first, then we give the love of the Lord. And it's a never-ending sort of symbiosis, right? Where we're giving, or we're receiving, we're giving, we're receiving, we're giving. And this is what Jesus is calling them to. This is the Lord of love. Rethink your conception of Lord. It's not about killing all the enemies. It's not this violent, wrathful conception of the Lord. It is a Lord that is the Lord of love that pours out love upon us. We receive and then we pour out. This is what it means to be the people of God. So let me just close by making some conclusions and giving us some invitations for us to consider. The first uh, is, is this, that the Lord... Who is the possessor of everything, okay? He is the possessor of everything. The Lord is the possessor of everything. Now, some of you, and, and some folks might have a hard time with that because they don't want anything above them. And I get that. But you're surrendering to the Lord of love. You're surrendering to the Lord of love. And so even though the Lord has this possessor kind of language that goes along with it, you are being possessed by love. Friends, you're possessed by love. The way that the subjects of the Lord then live is in love because that's the law for the subjects of the Lord. It's the constitution, so to speak, of the kingdom of heaven. It's one of love. That's the first thing. The second thing is this in this life, love looks like the cross of Jesus that awaits Jesus on Friday. And so, this love that we talk about, it's not a feeling based love, it's not a sentimental kind of love, but it's a pouring out sacrificial kind of love. It's a picture of receiving the love of God and giving the love of God, receiving the love of God and giving the love of God. And thirdly, it means giving it to our enemies. Okay? It's not just giving it to whomever we choose, but it's giving it to our enemies. What Jesus does in, in using Psalm 110 is also reframing Psalm 110. Put that uh, image back up there, Trevor, if you would. Because the conception of enemies becomes completely transformed. They think of enemies as Assyria, as Babylon, as Rome. Jesus thinks of enemy as sin and death. Those are the enemies of God. Sin and death are the enemies of God which God will overcome. And so loving is is indiscriminate in God's kingdom because as we talked about last week everyone is God's. You don't choose whom to love but we see through Christ that God pours his love out on everyone. Last thing I'll leave us with is this. We are invited to live now as if, as Hebrews says, the fear of sin and death has been abolished. Okay. This is something probably that, uh, that we ought, all ought to think about, meditate on, flesh out in some way or another. But the reason that we love discriminately, we choose who to love, is because we are afraid of what would happen if we would love indiscriminately. If we we love and we see this in our world, right? It's separated into us and them, whoever those parties are. But we love discriminately because we are afraid of what indiscriminate love will do. We will lose our power. We will lose our position. We will lose our privileges. We will give someone else the upper hand. And in some way, we will die. Or in some cases, we will literally die. But we are invited to live and we can live in love because jesus has abolished those two things that are the greatest enemies of all of us and that is sin and that is death it's not one another it's sin and it's death now are they still present among us absolutely we feel their presence every day but here here's the thing because sin and death will be abolished, and the fear of sin and death has been abolished. Those things do not keep us any longer from a cross-shaped love. Sin and death cannot keep us from a cross-shaped love because as we trust and give ourselves to Jesus as Lord, we no longer, um, we no longer uh, live in fear but can love indiscriminately. We give love freely because we have been freed, friends, from the power of sin and death. And so the same invitation that Jesus gives Sadducees and Jesus gives Pharisees is given to us. You know, all of our thinking about God will never be exhausted but must continually be renewed. And so there are ways that we adopt over the course of our life for whatever reasons that are antithetical to the Lord of love. And we continue to be, need to be renewed in those ways. And so the, the invitation uh, is the same to us as Jesus is giving to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In what ways have, um, are we being invited to consider and reconsider what Lord means in the conception and, and thinking about it as, the, as God is the Lord of love. Amen. I want to invite us just into a, a moment of quiet and reflection. And so, um, if we just want to take, take a moment of silence before we pray the Lord's Prayer together. And just allow and trust the Holy Spirit to bring words of comfort or words of challenge.